Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. If you come to Chicago, you have to go to Loba Pastry and Coffee. Anyone who is from Chicago or has spent time here knows what's up. Beyond the muffin or croissant that you might expect at most coffee shops, Loba boasts a menu that is both highly creative and technically ambitious. Valeria Taylor is the owner and baker behind Loba. Loba is Spanish for wolf, and Valeria named the shop after a particular wolf called the 06 female. Scientists studied the 06 female after releasing a pack of wolves into Yellowstone National Park for observation, and they were completely baffled by the behaviors and traits of this one particular wolf. The 06 female broke all stereotypes. She refused to settle for a mate, at one time courting five potential suitors. She outsmarted packs of rival wolves, and instead of hunting for prey in the shadows, she faced her opponents head on, rushing towards her intended targets. Like the 06 female, Valeria defies stereotypes. In a way, she's the ultimate MacGyver taking whatever situation life hands her and finding a solution. Her story is full of twists and turns and moments where she chooses to confront a problem with full force. Throughout it all, Valeria trusts herself. She knows her worth and her talent and doesn't back down. That isn't to say that there aren't challenges and failures in her story, but Valeria is the first to admit that she's better because of her failures and mistakes offer moments of growth and change. Valeria is refreshingly confident, joyous and funny, and bracingly honest and transparent. You're going to have a lot of fun listening to this episode. Here's Valeria. So Valeria, thank you so much for taking time to join me. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if you could start by explaining what loba means. Loba is the word in Spanish for a female wolf. Where did that name come from? Um, it's sort of like my um, my guide in this business. Um, a long time ago, I read this paper and I listened to this podcast about the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone National Park. And I mean, if you want to listen to it, the podcast is 06 Female. It's a, um, I want to say a short story, but it's based on a bigger study. Um, It talked about bringing wolves back to the park and scientists tracked them. And it was... um, like an experiment, you know, wolves used to belong to the park, but they were never studied this closely. And it just changed everybody's uh, knowledge of what wolves were actually like. You know, the idea of the lone wolf was thrown out. The idea of the alpha wolf was also thrown out because of this amazing female who just did whatever she wanted. And she led a pack and she didn't take a mate. She just took helpers, and I was just so inspired by by her, by by this study, by this powerful animal that I decided to name the shop after it. The name 
is a pretty good description of what your business actually is like as well, which is pretty cool foreshadowing in a way. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about that a little bit. How did you get started in the baking world? Uh, it's, um, it's, it's a very long story. I, it happened by accident. Um, I've been cooking all my life, but I got involved in it professionally shortly after I moved to Chicago. I was so confused about what I wanted to do with my life. I had just turned 21. Um, you know, just a little bit of background. Uh, I moved to the States when I was uh, 15 years old. Uh, I lived in Florida for some time. I actually moved to France <laughs> for uh, like a semester. So I did the whole study abroad and I was just so confused, had no direction. Ended up moving to Chicago because my circle of academic friends were at University of Chicago. And that was sort of the goal, you know, to just pursue academia. Um, But it was just not working out. And I was not adjusting into city living very well. And I was working as a nanny in the suburbs. And I don't know, I just needed more. Uh, And I went on Craigslist. And I I was looking for like, any sort of job that I could do in the city because I wasn't even spending any time in the city. Uh, And I saw this Craigslist ad for a uh, pastry intern. And I was like, well, I've baked before. I've worked in a restaurant before. I can totally do this. And I just showed up to the interview uh, ready and ready to learn (laughs) starve for something new. And they they hired me. Um, well, hiring is a funny word because it was an unpaid position, but right. It's not like you were getting paid. (laughs) Yeah. But it was, um, it was one of the best restaurants in the city. Now that I know, uh, Blackbird, the now closed Blackbird. Um, and I don't know, they took a chance on me and I sort of never looked back. You know, I just, that was the only place that had felt home since I had left home. So I just dove head on and never looked back. Yeah, because right after that, you really just went full out on baking and pastry, right? Yeah, I, let's see, this is in 2010. And I was working for free about three to four days a week. I don't know. I was pulling like some crazy shifts maybe 40 hours a week and just learning everything that I could learn in this very, very hard, uh, like classically uh, trained chef uh, was my boss. And he was, he was terrible, but (laughs) I think it was the direction that I needed at the time. Um, Yeah. I, I very quickly forgot about going back to school and yeah, I just, I don't know. There's really no other way to describe it. I learned everything that I could. I um, worked there for nine months. And after that, you know, went to another restaurant, stick to fine dining and uh, did that for a few years until 
I burnt out because there's so, only so many years that he can do 13, 14 hour shifts. Uh, yeah. Five days a week. Yeah, I think that's a really that's like a stopping point I want to talk about because I think for a lot of folks in coffee and a lot of people who listen to this podcast, their experiences probably mimic yours pretty precisely where you can go all in on coffee. You can work a minimum wage job for you. It was even more extreme because you were working unpaid internships <laughs> and you can kind of run on those fumes for a while. But then there's this moment where it's almost like you hit a wall. So I was wondering, what was that moment like when you realized, like, I can't do this anymore? Mm, I think it was about, um, for me, uh, I ended up, it was a, a lot of ups, ups and downs, you know, after leaving this internship, um, the, the job after that, I was hired under a pastry chef and she ended up leaving soon after. So with the little experience that I had, I sort of stepped up to the role of pastry chef and it felt good. You know, it felt a little validating that I was on the right path but I was just not ready for it, you know, and I, and I, I, I succeeded and I, and I failed in different ways. I still kept this job for a whole year, but it was, it was hard. You know, it, um, I was in, I don't know if I was ready to be humbled yet. So I don't know if I recognize that as failure. Um, I did know that I needed to, to gather more experience before I could lead a kitchen. Cause that's the one thing, you know, maybe you can have the talent, but being a, a manager or like heading a department, that's a complete different set of skills um, that I didn't have. Yeah. And I think that your experience probably mimics a lot of people's experience in coffee where you're a barista you're a barista for a while and then there's a management position and you're like of course I'm going to take this it's more money it's more responsibility and it feels incredibly validating mm -hmm. but we don't train anybody about how to be a leader <laughs> yeah so did you yeah did you find that tough like being a leader like suddenly being propelled into this position because you mentioned I didn't know if I was ready to be humbled yet and I think that that's a really powerful thing to realize it's it's also a little bit more complicated than that I was the youngest person in the kitchen altogether aside from the dishwasher um I was one of three women that worked in this big kitchen so there was even though I was supposed to have a place of power I had none I had zero leverage so <laughs> the experience was quite miserable and I actually ended up getting fired, which uh, really, really upset me at the time. I had just finished. It was right after Christmas. Uh, I had just finished like a Christmas banquet and like a New Year's Day banquet. I had worked so hard to have this be perfect. And then they let me go in the middle of winter in Chicago. Ugh. They, I mean, they didn't even fire me. They were just like, hmm, we think that you should uh, take a break. And I was like, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> Did you know, like, what was that like? I mean, I love a firing story. Don't get me wrong. Um, but like, what did you feel in that moment? Oh, I was so incredibly angry. Um, 
I have the story like I was so stressed out and I was so mad that I had like a little capillary burst on my toe. So like by the time I changed, you know, I left their office and I changed and my shoe was filled in blood. And I was like, you know what? I need to get out of here. <laughs> this is not normal. Um, but I'm a very intense person, you know, and that's I think that's part of what um, made me thrive in this industry is that, you know, if if somebody gives me a challenge, I'll be like, I'll do it better and then some more. So I don't know. It was a good time to step away. And, um, you know, my living situation was fine. I was in a house like with plenty of roommates. I I got smart and I asked for a severance package and, you know, like a, a week paid vacation. So I took one month and I went to New York City to see what the fine dining scene was out there. And um, it was great. You know, I just, um, I've only heard that the scene was different, but I didn't know how. And I brought all my tools and I brought my shoes and I was ready to work. Um, and I just knocked on every fine dining kitchen that I could see if anybody would take me. Um, I was embraced by the industry. It was really great. You know, I had, um, uh, I was able to walk in the kitchen of Del Posto. I was able to uh, go into uh, John George, uh, the kitchen at Daniel, give me a little tour. And what I kept hearing is that we would love to have you, but we don't do this thing of like internships. You can't. I, I don't know if it's true, but they told me that the city of New York would not allow um, stages or they had to be approved in a different way in at in a timeline that didn't fit my stay in the city um so I sort of like kept it in the back of my mind you know like maybe I will do this eventually and instead I got a short gig at a chocolatier shop in Soho called um for Jack Torres so it just mm -hmm. I tried a new thing so what at what point did you start thinking, I want something of my own. Like I want to open a business or I want my own bakery. The week, the first week that I started at Blackbird. Oh, so it was immediate. Immediate. Yeah. I was like, this is, this is it. Um, so, so then what was the turning point for you to realize like, oh, this is the time? Um, I think it's one of those like, having the stars align and perfect timing. Um, I spent, you know, from the time that I uh, started training in pastry, I think I spent uh, six more years working in the industry in different positions. You know, I was lucky to have a quote unquote pastry chef position very early on, but I tried like lower ranked positions in order to learn more. Um, I figured that I ultimately would work up to be a pastry chef again, but every opportunity that I had since, I understood very quickly that that was never going to happen. You know, like nobody was really taking me seriously. It didn't matter how hard I worked. I was just this, um, I don't know how to call it. I... I was, I just wasn't a dude and I wasn't white, so nobody was going to take me seriously. So 
I I stepped away. Um, I stepped away from the industry. Uh, and I always wondered, you know, what the alternative life would be like. You know, what if I just had a regular office job? And what if I had finished college? And what if I could do all this differently? And I, you know, I... <laughs> I pulled out the the Rolodex of all the former contacts that I once had, and I landed this gig as a. <laughs> I love that you're laughing about it because I know what you're gonna say, but it's just so funny for you to be like, "This is ridiculous." It's almost like like it's funny to go like in hindsight, be like, "This is ridiculous." Like, why did I do this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but. But yeah, sorry. So go ahead. Tell say say what you ended up doing. Um, I landed this gig as a project manager for a software company in the suburbs once again. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's funny because it was this, you know, the the ranking that I that I wanted, you know, the the value that I wanted. And for the first time in a long time, I had like a reasonable wage. Uh I had insurance and I had uh PTO and I had all these benefits. Um and I hated every single minute of it. You know, the idea of being in front of a computer and my job was so easy. I woke up in the morning, I had a um a Slack meeting with everybody, uh like a video meet for like 30 minutes, and then I would jump in the train, go to the suburbs and just tell 40-year-old men what to do. Um, and it was terrible. I hated it. I hated it so much, um, that every day that I was away from the kitchen, I just wanted to go back. But I, I knew that I couldn't be back in a, re in the restaurant industry. You know, I, I tried that again. I tried the fine dining. I tried the regular dining and it was just not working. So I kid you not, I think I also had like three days off. I had Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off. Like I had no idea what to do with my life once again. <laughs> um, and it was a Friday and I woke up at like 5 a.m. in the morning and I lived in Humboldt Park at the time. I just started walking. I was so sad and miserable with my life. I started walking. And I remember somebody once had told me that there was a really good small bakery in Lakeview. And I just decided to walk there from Humboldt Park. And just for people who are not in Chicago, that is not close. <laughs> what is it? It's like six miles. At least. I live in Humboldt Park. And for me to drive to you, I mean, this is a little foreshadowing because uh, where you walk to would end up being where Loba is now. Uh -huh. um, it's, at, it's like a 20-something minute drive. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a miserable death march, you know? But I, I finally made it there and I had some coffee and, you know, typical, there's no chairs. Um, but I just started talking to the guy behind the counter and the pastries that he was making was what I was familiar in these fine dining establishments. But I noticed very quickly that everybody who was in at the shop at this time had never heard of these things. And I was like, what do you mean a cannelé? It's so easy. I could do it in my sleep. Um, and this that's why this guy got so much praise because he was making these like fancier versions of pastries for this very ordinary coffee shop setup. Um, so 
you know, before I left, I, I, I cornered him and I was like, I'm going to work for you. And he was like, I'm not taking any employees right now. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to work for you. See you tomorrow. What time do you get in? Like <laughs> 4 a.m. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not taking any, um, any employees. And I was like, cool. So what is it later? Is it 5 a.m.? Is 4 a.m. too early? And he was like, oh, well, can you be here at like 3.30 or something ridiculous? And I was like, I'll be here. And I just showed up the next day, Saturday, the busiest day of the week. And I was like, all right, what, what do I do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't think he thought I was going to show up, but I did. I was there early, like 15 minutes early, just ready to work with my shoes on, all my tools, being like, what's up, chef? And I, yeah, I just picked it up within That's two weeks. That's uh, amazing. No, no, no. It's just amazing that you decide like you just made this decision you're like i'm doing this thing yeah <laughs> welcome like hello yeah and at first it was just going to be for friday and saturday because i had that time off and i figured you know i'll work monday through thursday at my boring office job and i'll do this friday and saturday for free and i'll be happy um i think two weeks in he's telling me that he can hire me, but if I know any barista, um, he's looking for a barista. And I was like, what is that? I'll do it. You know, whatever. Just hire me already. Um, and, you know, he's going over how you steam milk. And I'm like, oh, okay. So like a milk meringue, gotcha. And I kid you not, I'm not even trying to like toot my own horn, but I poured on my first try a perfect uh, flat white. Like I even got well, the like shit. right. I was just like, oh, okay. <laughs> so what? Like it's hard. Uh, <laughs> um, and what I like to tell everybody, I'm not trying to diminish a barista's ability. It's just that, you know, when you work in pastry, everything is so precise. Gauges and thermometers and uh like frothing is something that you do constantly with not just one, but multiple ingredients at the same time. So the idea of making an emulsion with like a, um, like a syrupy, oily mix in something light and frothy that has to be at about 68 degrees, I was like, cool, I've done this. You know, it's like a mousse, but easier. So right. it was, I, I basically had been trained to be a barista in many different ways. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. That's wild how bold that is, uh, but also incredibly inspiring to feel like, oh, there's a thing that I want to do and I'm going to do it and mm -hmm. I'm going to make it happen. Um, so obviously at some point you decide to leave your boring job, which I think there's there's some interesting tension there. This idea that like to have stability, you had to do this boring job, mm -hmm. but then you had to sacrifice the thing you love. And then eventually it seems like you kind of start to to go back to the thing you love mm -hmm. um so at what point did um like opening a shop kind of come into focus uh it was also by accident uh <laughs> so i mean i i can talk concrete numbers if you want but i opened up the shop with a five thousand dollar loan that's wild. That's all I did. That's nothing. Yeah. 
That feels like such an insurmountable goal to say, I want to open a shop. But to hear you say, I did it with $5,000 makes it feel a lot more accessible. <laughs> it makes it feel like this is, a, this is doable. Yeah. I also knew that, you know, I had, I had some savings um, and I knew that at the very least I was going to give it my all. You know, I had nothing else going on and this was going to be the thing that I was going to do for the next five years. And that, that was my goal. That was, I was like, for five years, I'm just going to work hard as hell and go all in and we'll see what happens. You know, maybe in five years, I realized that it wasn't worth it and I figure something else out. Yeah. What were those first couple of months like? Because you were Loba's only employee for a long time. <laughs> I I was, but um, I also, so the shop was open six days a week um, from seven to three. Uh, on the weekends, I had my business partner help. Um, so like Saturday and some Sundays, he would come in and give me a hand, but otherwise it was just me. Um, it was stressful. <laughs> uh kind of fun I don't know um yeah do you even remember it I I I remember the feeling um you know I I just spent so much time there I just basically I almost lived at the shop in fact like I had a little cot that I would sleep in sometimes from for like anxiety for nervousness for tiredness but I just spent so much time there trying to prep trying to organize trying to clean trying to figure out what to do you know um because it just I don't know it just felt so urgent that I couldn't even give myself any rest I felt that if I rested too long it would all go away you know, it's, I also couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I had managed to do my goal of opening this bakery that I had thought of on my first week of working pastry uh, as an intern in this very professional kitchen. Because the, the thought, the original thought was that maybe after I'm 30 years old, maybe I'll be able to do this in a smaller town, not a big city like Chicago. So I, I think the first two years I kept pinching myself. I just couldn't believe it. At what point did you decide or did you realize that you could start hiring people? Because that's something that you talk about a lot too, that you hire people, like you want to hire people and give them jobs that don't suck essentially. <laughs> so I imagine you had to think a lot about like, what does it mean to hire somebody? Um... I had no idea where to start. And um I had so there was a there was a girl from the neighborhood that would come in sometimes. And she was young and you know it's like I remember the first time that she came in she wanted like a vanilla latte, you know, something like sugary and uh full of milk. And I remember the next time she came in she got something smaller like flat white. And then the next time she got a cortado and, you know, she finally was brave enough to uh, try uh, 
a shot of espresso just straight up. You know, she was like developing her palate as she was coming in. And it was very exciting. Um, so, and I don't know if, if you come to the shop, it's very small. Like there's one big counter. You can't hide. If there's one person in the shop, I'm like, hi, how are you? <laughs> What's up? And especially back then, you know, I just talked to everybody because um, it was fun and there was nothing else, you know, there was nowhere else to hide. Um, and this girl who was probably only 16 at the time was telling me that she was looking for a job. If I knew anybody hiring, she's like, oh, I'm thinking about maybe applying to Dinkles. It's an old school bakery down the street. And I don't know why, but I was like, why don't you work here? And she was like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, why don't you work here? And she, you know, she didn't know anything about coffee, but one thing that she was willing to do is she wanted to learn. She just wanted to learn everything that there was to to learn about coffee. And she could appreciate that the pastries were not frozen or coming from a box from miles away. You know, she could appreciate that they were made in house. And I was like, okay, you're hired. <laughs> um, she she was homeschooled at the time. So I think she worked two two days a week and then three days a week. And before I knew it, she could do my job too. You know, she, I trained her. She wanted to learn more. She She learned everything that she could about coffee and being a barista and pour overs and grind size. And she was like, what else? Can I learn how to bake? And I was like, sure, let's do this. <laughs> so we started baking together and it was a huge help. It allowed me to um, sort of grow. It, it allowed me to grow the business since I didn't have to be there all the time anymore. It gave me the uh, the time that I needed to breathe, the time that I needed for myself. Not only that, this um, when I first hire her. And part of the reason why I kept her is that at the time I was buying my business partner out. So I I needed some extra help for the weekends. And I, it was once again, make it or break it time. You know, it, it, it relied on me once again. And I needed to, to learn how to do all of the business stuff that my business partner had been doing because that's the thing I handle everything on site you know the food preparation and the coffee and the cleaning and he took care of bills and permits and uh compliance uh right. compliance <laughs> uh oh I had to learn all that and it was uh it was it was interesting I think I I did a few things very wrong in the few months that I almost, I feel like I almost lost a shop uh, really? during that transition. I feel like I was just not paying bills in time. I couldn't figure out this, the tax rate that you need to pay to the city. And I, I was starting to accrue a lot of debt and I was so overwhelmed and I didn't have a line of credit. It was oh, all these things. Anyway. I made it. I, I will never look back. Yeah, that's that's wild to hear. Um, but it's also important to hear because I think it's easy to be like, yeah, and it all worked out. But <laughs> there are moments where you're like, I don't know if this is going to work, you guys. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit about Loba now um, because you talked a little bit about what the shop used to be when it was Bad Wolf before you you bought the space and kind of the classic pastries that they would do because I think what makes Loba so special besides the fact that you're amazing is that the pastries are like a singularity. Like you can't get pastries like what you make at Loba anywhere else. And I think it is this really interesting combination of these like fine dining things. Like when you mentioned Canales, I'm like, fuck, I'd eat the shit out of a bunch of Canales. Um, but you never find them at other coffee shops um, mm-hmm. because they are maybe a little more associated with fine dining. And, but then you also have your, you infuse like your heritage and your background into the pastry. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you designed your pastry menu or how do you think about the pastries you make? Um, I think it comes down to, to be completely honest, inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Whenever I make something at the shop, I want to make sure that it can be enjoyed by a lot of people. You know, one of the things that uh, pushed me out of fine dining was the elitist attitudes that it had. And, you know, while French pastry is very well respected, the the terms and the ingredients of fine dining can be a little bit alienating for regular people. And that's one thing that I never wanted to do. I wanted anybody who came to the shop to recognize what they were eating and maybe enjoy something new. So, you know, there, there is no rules except that there's always something savory, something vegan, something gluten-free. Um, I try to use, of course, local and organic produce or products as much as possible. Um, but yeah, it has to be, I don't want to shock anybody. I want everybody to enjoy what they're eating and not feel bad about it, feel good about it. And not be like, oh, you don't know what a queen amon is. <laughs> Get out of my shop. You know, <laughs> it would be like more like, yeah, this is a funny uh, thing. It's basically a caramelized croissant. There's nothing weird about it. It's delicious. Try it. Um, so the French technique, um, I think, is helpful because it helps or it's a good way of making pastry. It's uh not even refined. I don't know. It's the it's the standard in pastry world. But I've used. Um, I always considered what I like to eat, uh, what ingredients I like to consume. Um, like I mentioned before the interview started, my grandmother was the kind of person who would rather do it herself, and that meant you know if. She went to the store and the chorizo wasn't the way that she liked it. She would make chorizo by hand and cure it and then have it just the way that she liked it for the rest of her life, you know? So I think a lot of it, a lot of the inspiration comes from my grandmother too. Yeah, it seems like you balance both making things accessible and doing exactly what you want, which is hard. Yeah. It's I also I think a lot of the pastries just come come out by accident. I don't know if I ever have a plan of like let's make a brand new pastry that doesn't exist before. It's usually like what if I put this with this other thing and then mix it and see what happens. Yeah, and see what happens. 
that might be good. And there's, there's been a lot of failures. You know, I think I earlier I was looking through my Instagram feed, you know, seeing what I used to the pastries that I used to make before. And obviously, I've grown so much as a baker. Uh, I I continue to learn every day, you know, there the the journey never ends. There's always like a new ingredient or a new technique or a new way of cooking things. And that's, that's also exciting. You know, I want to talk a little bit about the store because the last time that I went to Loba, you had a vigil to Brianna Taylor and to Vanessa Guillen. And that is incredibly powerful. So I was wondering if you could talk like, how do you how do you imbue yourself into the space? Because it feels very personal. When you go into Lobo, it feels like it is your coffee shop. Yeah, I I think it's because it's it's been my home. It's it is an extension of me. It's I I've spent so much time there that it's it's part of me too. Um the vigil was an altar for Day of the Dead. Um it's popped into uh, pop culture here in the U.S., but growing up, it was a very regular thing to do. Even though it's super traditional, I never saw it as something antiquated. Um, we would make them at home. We would make them um, in school. You know, it was part of my life and the way that I grew up. And it's another thing that also centers about food. And I don't know if you can tell this, but I, I love food and food is so important to me. It's definitely my love language if there is, if that one exists. Um, so, you know, I, Day of the Dead is, uh, it's an important, important tradition that I want to keep alive uh, the same way that I did growing up. And for anybody who doesn't know, you make an altar for someone who has passed away either a long time ago or recently uh and it's uh some people call it ofrenda because you make an offering for these people because for this one night um it is believed that there's a portal that opens in between you know this world and the other worlds and for one night um people that have passed can visit their loved ones if they are only guided to what, where they should be. And it's a joyous, joyous occasion. Of course, Brianna Taylor and Vanessa Guillen were murdered in the worst possible circumstances. Um, and that's why I wanted to celebrate their spirits in whichever way that I could. You know, I don't think it's about what is real and what isn't and this mystical thing is just um, celebration and respect for for anybody, you know? And hopefully they found the little altar and had some pan de muerto and a bite of this avocado and everything else that I put on the altar. <laughs> what do you want people to know about you listening to this? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I have to imagine that you you know your story in and out. Like talking to you, and maybe this is me getting. I have I have a rally from Little Waves in my head, so I'm just gonna get a little meta. Um, <laughs> I have to imagine like listening to you talk about your story and tell your story. Like you've told your story. Like you know it in and out, and it feels like 
you seem to identify very specific parts of your story to like the current moment that you're living in. So I feel like you understand its importance very deeply. Um, and that's why you feel so comfortable telling it. Um, so I wonder, like, you you must know that like people look to you as an inspiration in a way. And I know that could be feel kind of uncomfortable to to reckon with, but um that's kind of just like my meta assessment of this moment. Um, but I wonder, like, as you tell your story and as you are on a platform like this, or you give an interview for a magazine or an article, like what would people look at you? What do you want them to feel? Maybe a little bit of hope. Um, and also <laughs> a little bit of anger and resistance. Because as much as I've had this opportunity, it wasn't as easy. It was not easy. And there were a lot of people that stood between me and, and my goals and my desires. Um, so... You know, the angst, <laughs> I like to tell myself that, um, or I like to joke that a punk is a punk and I'll never get old in that sense. But um, the angst just shifts uh, course and I'm still angry, but I am not directing that anger to myself or to people, maybe to the establishment. And there's, there's hope, you know, you can't lose hope. You can't give in and it, it is, it is difficult and it is hard, but what else are you going to do, you know, but try and maybe try harder and give it your best. I think for me, that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned from this conversation is to just try because mm -hmm. you never know. Yeah. You never know. And you know, I think <laughs> I can say that uh, now I can say that that you have to be open to failure and it's not the end of the world. Um, there's the biggest lessons that I've learned in business and this life has been through failure. Like I've failed miserably and massively in like making recipes and running a business. And every time that I fail, I learn something new. And that also keeps me going. Valeria, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. Before we end, though, uh, because you said this off the air and I want you to say it on the air. Can you say your full name for everybody? <laughs> My born given name is Maria del Socorro Valeria Rebecca Vallado Velasquez. Thank you. I wanted to make sure that that was on the record. <laughs> Yeah. Um, if, so a story about that. I became a citizen a few years ago. My uh, stepdad, I call him my dad because he's been my father figure. Um, he's uh, an American born person. And um, he married my mom when I was uh, when I was 15. That's why I ended up in the U.S. I never wanted to. But since he is my dad, um, I decided to take his last name when I became a citizen to sort of like give him the respect that I do honor the respect that I feel for him. So I didn't mean to whitewash my name so much. <laughs> I didn't realize <laughs> the repercussions. <laughs> 
And it's funny that, you know, everybody, a lot of people think that I maybe am not Mexican when I feel so, so Mexican. Um, but yeah, it's, that's, that's where my last name comes from. And, you know, I'm not ashamed of it. Um, I love my stepdad and I don't know, this is where I'm at. No, that's, that's where you're at. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't have to justify the choices that you make. So fuck that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do what you do, whatever the fuck you want. Um, thank you again for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Uh, this was great. Um, thank you for giving me the time and the platform. That was Valeria Taylor, owner and baker behind Loba Pastry and Coffee. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next week. I'm just looking for a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com slash bossbarista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be amazing. We're at Boss Barista Podcast on Instagram and Boss underscore Barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at bossbaristapodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.